Luke 24, verses 36 through 53. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it caused it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple praising God. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I know last Sunday was Easter, and a beautiful celebration of the resurrection last Sunday. Uh, but that's just too important and wonderful a story to move on from too quickly. So this week, I want to come back to it. But, but this week, just want to look at a few of those events that took place immediately following the resurrection. Luke gives us some of those details. He tells us about this group of women that went to the tomb that morning. And when they arrived at the tomb, they found the stone rolled back, and they went inside and found an empty tomb. But then two angels appeared to them, and they told them those, those wonderful words, He is risen. And they were amazed, and they ran back to tell the disciples, 11 disciples now, remember, because Judas is gone. So they run back to the 11 disciples to tell them what they had seen and what they had experienced. And they tell the disciples this, this wonderful news, and we're told that they thought it was nonsense that they didn't believe. But Peter decides he wants to go check it out for himself. So Peter runs back to the tomb and he takes a look and sees the empty tomb and sees those burial linens laying there. And we're just told that he walks away wondering, still not sure. The next story that Dr. Luke tells us is about these men who are walking away from Jerusalem that day and they're walking towards the town of Emmaus. As they're walking along the road and they're talking about the events of the last few days, we're told that Jesus walks up to them and begins walking with them and talking with them. 
except he makes it so that they can't recognize him. They don't know who it is that's with them. And they're talking about those events and all that's happened, and he kind of rebukes them, kind of says they should understand what all this is about and what all this means. But then following that, he immediately starts walking them through the scriptures. He shows them how every detail points to him and points to the events of those few days, how they really are the center of the story. And then we're told later that night he sits down to eat with them, And as he's eating with them, he opens their eyes so they can suddenly recognize who he is. And in that moment, told he disappears. Well, they're so excited that that night they run all the way back to Jerusalem, several miles. They go all the way back to Jerusalem to the disciples who are again gathered together. And they're gathered together with several other followers of Jesus. We're told that they're in this locked room in Jerusalem, probably fearing persecution, probably afraid, trying to figure out what to do now. Also probably processing some of these stories they're beginning to hear about Jesus appearing, figuring out what this all means. But they're together in this locked room. These men come back, can't wait to tell them the story. And as they're telling them the story of what's happened, told that Jesus appears in their midst. He's right there with them. And they're not sure what to make of it. Um, As I read that story, I thought, I wonder what they really felt, what they were really thinking as Jesus appears as they see him for the first time since the crucifixion. And many thoughts ran through my mind, but one of them was, I imagine that even though this was a wonderful, joyous experience, there's probably in some ways that this was a little bit scary, that this was a little bit, um, you know, wondering, what's he thinking of us? How's he going to respond to us? Because for several of them, these last few days haven't been their best days. We know the stories about Peter and his denial of Jesus as he was being arrested and taken away. And I'm sure if Peter was doing that, he wasn't the only one. We know many of them scattered and fled and are gone into hiding. Many were feeling hopeless and doubting. And they really weren't believing that the real Jesus could have been risen. In some ways, not their best days. Wondering, when Jesus, if this really is Jesus, if he really is alive, what's he going to say to us? What's his response going to be? I was thinking of times I've had that feeling. One of them that came to mind was back when I was in 6th or 7th grade, I think. My father had a 67 Mustang Fastback that he kept in the garage and he would tinker with and work on restoring over time. When I was in 6th or 7th grade, when everybody was gone, I was just really into that car. And when everybody was gone uh, from, and I was home alone on occasion, I would back that car out of the garage and I would pull it into the backyard and we had over an acre in our backyard of lawn and I would drive that car around uh, and nobody would know. Uh, and they never figured out because we had mini bikes so there were always tracks all over the yard so I'd drive it around the backyard and then I'd drive it back and I'd work real hard to get it in the garage in just the right spot and nobody knew the better. Until one day I took that car out of the garage when everybody was gone and I drove it in the backyard, drove it around. And when I came back, to get back into the garage, I had to drive uh, through this little lane where the garage was on one side and there was a line of these real big birch trees on the other. And the car kind of just fit through. Well, this time I was only sixth or seventh grade. I wasn't a great driver. I came back through and I clipped one of those trees with the rear bumper of that Mustang as I came through. And on those big old birch trees with that white bark, boy, that, that slash I made across that tree, it stood out. I mean, there was no missing the fact that something had happened to that tree. I was fortunate, nothing, no damage had happened to the car, cleaned it up, put it back away where it belonged. But I knew when my dad got home, where he parked his car after work, 
right out his front windshield would be that tree. And I knew there's no way he's missing that tree. And I kept thinking he's going to figure it out. He's going to know what happened to that tree. All day long, all I could think about, you know how it is. What is he going to do? Is he going to figure it out? If he does figure it out, is he going to be angry? Is he going to be disappointed? There's this little glimmer of a thought. Maybe he'll just think it's kind of funny. Uh, <laughs> doubt that was going to happen, but, you know, there's a possibility. There's hope. Then what's my punishment going to be? What's going to happen? Because that's a pretty big deal. Uh, what's really going to happen? Uh, boy, when I think about those disciples, Jesus is standing before you. You've been hearing the stories. You've been wondering about it. Jesus is standing before you. How's he going to respond to you? Here's the first words that Jesus spoke. Peace be with you. His first words, he invokes God's blessing on their behalf. And I don't think that's just a greeting. I think those are words that he really means. Jesus truly does want them and want us to experience God's peace. We see that right before the events that took place. Right before his arrest, we see that he is with his disciples. He's talking to them about the events that are going to come. He's telling them, very soon I'll be taken away from you. He, he knows what that means. He knows it's going to be suffering and torture, incredible pain. He knows the events that are ahead. And he's, and he's talking to them and saying that one of the people who's sitting with us here right now is going to be my betrayer. One of the people I've loved and cared for one of the people I've lived with, one of the people who just moments before he washed their feet. He's going to be his betrayer. He's sitting with them and he's saying, Peter, Peter, one of the people I've loved the most and has loved me, you're going to deny me. You're not just going to deny me. You're going to deny me three times. All of those things are just about to take place. He's predicting them. He's thinking about them. He knows it. And here are the words that he speaks to his disciples just after that. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? All of these things are on his mind right before him. He's predicting these, these very difficult things that are ahead. And what's his concern? I want to care for you. I don't want your hearts to be troubled. I want you to still have hope, to not give up, to remember the future. He cares for them. He wants them to know peace, just like he wants us to know peace. I've been told that the most often repeated command in Scripture is do not fear. Now, I've never really checked it out to make sure that's true, but I'll bet it's pretty high on the list. Do not fear. It's what God wants for us. Put away your fears. Live in peace. Put away those doubts, those concerns. Don't be scared. Know God's peace. As a pastor, I talk with people often who are really struggling uh, to believe that God could truly love them and that God could want good for them. And often the, those concerns are preceded by telling me stories about how they really waver in their faith, stories about ways in which they feel they've turned their back on God or deny him, times they've failed or given in to temptation, the struggles they have and to really stay in relationship with God and to walk with him. It's not hard in those moments to tell them I really do believe that if you turn towards Jesus, you will find somebody who loves you and wants the best for you, who truly does want you to experience peace. Because this very same Jesus in this story 
is the Jesus you'll turn to if you'll turn to him now. This is Jesus. Jesus, I think, not only wants us to know peace, wants us to really, truly experience peace, I think he also wants us to be confident in our belief. He wants us to understand, to know the truth, to truly confidently believe. You see, when they not only receive those words from but then we're told that they're still, they're startled and they're frightened. And again, when I read that, I thought, that seems like a pretty understandable response to me. You just saw Jesus a few days ago die, be buried. He's now standing in front of you. I think I'm going to be startled and frightened. I think that is a reasonable response. But Jesus didn't really seem to treat that as a reasonable response. His words to them were, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? You really have no reason to be troubled. You really have no reason for doubts. As I thought about that, I thought, Yeah, actually, they really don't. We don't. As I thought about that, I thought, Boy, you really don't. You have lived with this man and walked with this man. You have experienced firsthand pure love, true holiness. You have watched him perform these remarkable miracles. You've seen him raise Lazarus from the dead. You've experienced being with him when he turned water into wine. You have seen him heal the lame and heal the blind. You've seen him drive out demons. You have firsthand or, or heard from people who firsthand have seen those things. You know that he has power over life and death. You know that he has power over all unseen spiritual forces. You know that. You've experienced that. Why are you troubled? Why do you doubt? But what I love in this story is they are troubled. They doubt. They've been taught all these things. They've experienced all these things with him. And yet he still offers them what they need again to be confident, to believe. Again, as I meet with people often, one of the things that they will do with me if I meet with people for counseling and they're coming back and still talking about some of the same struggles, some of the same difficulties, people will often apologize. They'll often feel kind of ashamed that we have to keep going over the same material. I'm ashamed you have to talk about the same things with me again and encourage me in the same ways. It's not hard in those moments to say to them, that is not strange. That's not an odd thing. Uh, I think that is, that's all of us. Uh, Charles Swindoll used to say, the Christian life is three steps forward and two steps back. I think that's how all of us grow. Uh, we need to hear again and again. We need reassured again and again. We need encouraged again. And again. We need reminded of the same things we heard and believed and thought we got before. We need them brought back in front of us again. That's how growth happens for all of us. I think I've mentioned before, I once heard an interview with Dr. Phil, the TV psychologist. In this, he was talking about why he quit doing clinical practice, why he quit meeting with people for counseling. And he said the reason that he became a legal consultant and then a TV host instead of counseling people, because he said he, he would meet with people and he would, he would tell them, you know, here, I, I figured out kind of what's going on with you. He'd identify the problem. He'd lay it out for them. He'd tell them, here are the things I think you ought to do in the future. And he said, they'd come back the next week and want to talk about the same stuff. Like, I just couldn't stand it. I didn't want to do it anymore. And I listened to him and thought, you should not be in clinical practice. You should not. You should be a TV host. Because that's life. That is real life with us. Jesus says, why are you troubled? Why do you doubt? But then, 
he says, when they think he's, maybe you're just a ghost, he says, no, touch my hands. See the, see the holes from the nails in my hands. Touch my feet. Feel, believe, I'll give you what you need. Then there's this great statement in Scripture. It says, even after touching, after seeing that he really is flesh and blood, it says they still don't believe. And it says they don't believe because of joy and amazement. Well, that's kind of an odd statement, isn't it? I didn't believe because of joy and amazement. That's usually not what I think of the problem in my believing. I feel too much joy and amazement, and I just can't believe. But as I thought about it, again, I thought, I don't think it's really that strange. I think it's the experience of a lot of us. How many times when there's something before you that is so wonderful, so amazing, you so long for it to be true, you almost can't stop yourself from believing it because you so want it to be true. But then there's that little part of you that because it's so amazing, because it's so great, you're also afraid to believe. You're afraid to really let yourself embrace it. Because just as wonderful as it is, and as much as I want to believe it, if I'm wrong, if I'm fooled, boy, the disappointment's going to be huge. It's so good, so important. I, I just a little bit afraid to hold on to it because it's, it's going to hurt bad if it's not what I hope. And I think also one of the problems is something that is so great and so amazing, if I really truly fully embrace it and fully believe it, everything changes. Everything is now different if I really let myself believe in that. Because it's so great. They, they felt joy and they felt amazement. Is he really alive? Is he really before us? Oh, that's scary to hold on to and fully believe. I don't think that we're that much different than them. How many times in life do you think about the fact that Jesus is alive? Jesus is present and alive. Jesus is right here today with us in our midst. If I let myself fully believe that, fully believe the kingdom of God has come, its reality today, if I fully let myself believe that, everything has changed. Everything is different now. And I kind of don't want to fully believe. I'm not sure I want everything to change that much. William Willimon, he's a theologian from Duke Divinity School. Um, he said that one time by a skeptical friend, he was asked this question. Why do you need a supernaturally resurrected body of Jesus to make your faith work? Why is that so important to you Christians? Willimon said his reply was, I don't need a resurrected Jesus. Come to think of it, I'm not sure I want a resurrected Jesus. In fact, in one sense, a resurrected Jesus is a real nuisance for me personally. I've got a good life. I figured out how to work the world on the whole to the advantage of me and my friends and my family. My health is good and everybody close to me is doing fine. I have the illusion that I'm in control, that I'm making a pretty significant contribution to help Jesus on my own. No, I don't need a bodily resurrected Jesus. In fact, once I truly embrace the resurrection of Jesus, my life would become much more difficult. Not sure I really want that. Everything would change. It's really the message of Paul's beautiful chapter about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, where he goes in great detail about everything has changed because of the resurrection of Jesus. And at the end of that chapter, you hear these words. 
Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Your labor doesn't just matter for this life. God is resurrected. Jesus is alive and well and present. You're a part of a much bigger story. Everything truly has changed. Your labor for Christ is never in vain. We know that because he's alive. So, they touched his hands and his feet. They still don't believe. They don't believe because of joy and amazement. And then he says, give me something to eat. You should believe, but give me something to eat. And he eats this broiled fish in front of him. Again, he patiently kind of stoops down and says, I'll give you whatever you need to wipe away those doubts. You should believe, and I want you to believe. I want to give you whatever you need to believe. Matter of fact, he kind of comes back as he does again and again in these interactions and kind of reminds them they should understand. In verse 44, he says, This is what I told you while I was with you. This isn't new information. You've had this. You should know this. Scriptures have... You know the scriptures, you've been taught, you've heard me teach. You understand all of this was had to take place because of who I am. You should know this. But then his response is to point him back to scripture again. To patiently teach them again. To remind them of the things they've learned before. To help those things sink in deeper again and again. I think it's how all of us learn. As a matter of fact, he doesn't just teach them again. Scripture says he opens their minds. He supernaturally opens their minds so they can understand the scriptures. Say, well, that's a wonderful gift. They get that. Well, scripture tells us we all get that. That the Holy Spirit came and that's the gift we have. That God is with us and opens our minds so we can understand the scriptures. Doesn't mean we don't need to go back again and again, right? We need to go back again and again and again. I tell you, a lot of times we put a, we put a lot of hope in special experiences. You know, we're going to have this remarkable experience, this kind of emotional, life-changing experience where suddenly everything in our life is going to change and we're going to follow God in a new way. And I think it's pretty cool when we have those. I think those are wonderful things when we experience that. But sometimes I think we put too much hope in just that. We wait for the experiences. That's That's what's going to produce growth. And I would say, no, go back to the scriptures again and again and again. Allow God to open your mind. Privately sit with his word. Um, in community, sit with his word. Be taught again and again. You say, well, I got that figured out. I actually heard a man one time tell me, he said, you know, I only go to church now to help others because I've really learned it all. And I, I was kind of, you didn't really say that to me, did you? You really have learned it all? I thought, man, I can go to Scripture again and again and again, and every time there's something new. Every time. We need that. John Calvin said, though, we not only need to go to the Scriptures, but we need to go to the Scriptures understanding that if we're really going to get it, we need the key. If we're really going to understand what it's about. He said, the Scriptures should be read with the aim of finding Christ in them. Whoever turns aside from this object, even though he wears himself out all of his life in learning, he will never reach the knowledge of the truth. And that's what Jesus did with them, isn't it? He gave them the key. He walked them through scriptures again, like those men on the road to Emmaus. But he walked them through scripture now with the key. 
you'll understand all of these things as they're really meant to be understood because you'll understand they're all about me. If you get that, they all now make sense in a way they couldn't without me. Uh, when I was a kid, you know, you loved to send those secret messages with your friends and you'd, you'd make up your little secret codes. And you know how you make the code? You list the alphabet down one side of the paper and then beside it you put maybe a different letter or number or symbol and that would represent that letter in your secret message code. And then you write messages to each other with that secret code and the only people who could read them were the people who had the key. The people who kept the key. Jesus gave them the key. Again and again, as he meets with these people after resurrection, he says, this is the key. What's just happened. Who I am. The resurrected Christ. This now makes sense of everything. He, he opens their minds. He points them back to the truth again and again. He teaches them and they need taught. He gives them the evidence that they need to believe. He wants them to be confident in their understanding and in their belief. Just as he does with us. One pastor I read put it this way. Most of us are not argued out of Christianity. We simply drift out of it. And we drift first away from Scripture. We need to go back again and again and again. It needs to be a habit of our life. Finally, when I look at this, one of the things I find amazing in the story, little glimpses we get in the story of who Jesus is, he not only wants us to know peace, he not only wants us to truly, confidently believe and understand, but he also wants to enlist us to serve as his ambassadors. And I think that's one of the most gracious things in this story. These, these people who doubted, these people who wavered at times in their faith, these people who gave up when they really had no reason to give up, he lifts them up, he gives them what they need to believe, and then he sends them out. He sends them out to be a part of this incredible, important remarkable work these people who like us are people who sometimes don't have it all together these are the people to whom he entrusts this life-changing world-changing history-defining message and says you get to be my messenger messengers and my ambassadors to the world and he sends them out again in verse 46 we read this the messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power on high. I think few things lift up and restore and return hope to people who have, who have failed or turned their back or walked away more than having trust placed back on their shoulders again, having trust restored. And that's what he does with his disciples again and again. We see in another story, just immediately following the resurrection, we see it when he, another appearance of his where he's interacting with Peter. Peter had denied him three times, and we see him restore Peter. Three times he calls him back to be the leader of his church, to be his servant and carry that message. He loves to restore us, to lift us. And he tells us, wait, because I'm not sending you out on your own. I'm not sending you out to just depend on yourself. Wait, because the Spirit's coming, and I'm going to give you what you need to do this great work. He not only restores us and entrusts us with this remarkable message, then he gives us the power that we need to carry it. It's not just all up to us. And then the end of the story is, he walks a couple miles with his disciples out to Bethany, this little town of Bethany, and he lifts up his hands, and once again he calls down God's blessing on them. 
And then we're told he's taken up to heaven. Once again, the story ends with, I want you to be blessed. I want to call down God's blessing and God's peace upon you. Richard Niebuhr, a theologian at Yale, he said the great Christian revolutions come not by the discovery of something that was not known before. They happen when somebody takes radically something that was always there. He gave them everything they needed to own what they already knew, to believe more deeply. And the end of the story is they go away with joy in worshiping God. They are a joyous, worshiping people, not because of them, but because God so patiently, and consistently, again and again, gives us what we need to be a people who know peace, to be a people who believe, to be a people who are useful for great purposes. That's what he wants to do for us. So when we come to Scripture, I, I've said before, I, I think it is wonderful to go to Scripture and ask questions about what does it say about us? What should we do? Those are good questions to bring to the text whenever you're reading Scripture. But I think another good question to bring to the text is what does it just tell us about God? Who is he? And, and I think we fail to ask that question often enough. So when you come to this text... What does it tell you about God? Who is Jesus in this text? Uh, I've been intrigued lately with all these stories that have been in the media about uh, emails that have been made public, private emails that are out there public, from corporations being hacked or government emails that are now made public, all these things where, where suddenly that which was private suddenly known to everybody. And, you know, I'm sure like me, many of you thought, glad that's not me. Glad everything I say privately and think privately, uh, isn't suddenly in front of everybody. I've thought about it sometimes. thought, what if all my thoughts, what if all my actions, what about every little motivation was made public? i got to tell you, that's scary. That is not a pretty picture. I don't want everything out there. Uh, several years ago, when my mom first suffered some major strokes, uh, one of the things that happened to her at first was she kind of lost all her filters. Every thought that entered her mind came out of her mouth. Uh, and this sweet little godly gentlewoman said things that I was like, where did those come from? There was a language I thought. I didn't even know you knew what those words meant. You know, everything came pouring out. I was glad in that moment to think, filters are a good thing. It's good everything isn't made public all the time. The one they stood before, Jesus, the one into whose face they looked, everything is public to him. He knows every thought. He knows every action. He knows every fear they had, every doubt. He knew every every way they were just about themselves. He knew when they betrayed and when they denied. And the same Jesus stood before them. And he stooped down and he gave them what they needed to put away their doubts. He called God's blessing down on them. He lifted them up and empowered them and he sent them out. That same Jesus is the Jesus that when we turn to God who is there before us when you feel like oh, it's hopeless and my faith is always up and down and I keep making these same dumb choices and sometimes I worry more about what people think than what God thinks who will you turn to if you turn to God the same Jesus in this story is the Jesus who's looking back at you don't be slow to turn towards him let's pray Father, how thankful we are 
that we have a God who is patient, who pursues us, who doesn't wait on us to be enough, that gives us what we need. Father, we are, we confess that we are sometimes slow learners, that we are quick to doubt and quick to give up. But again, how thankful we are that this life that we want to live for you isn't dependent upon just us. In your blessed name, amen.